You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Jesus, thanks for today, and thanks for your love for us, and thank you for your word, and thank you for this season, God, where we, um, there really is a magic as we kind of celebrate your coming and celebrate the good news that you have come and lived and died and risen and ascended, and you reign on your throne as king. You watch over us with your, um, with your kindness and with your sovereign love. And so I pray this this uh, next 35, 40 minutes that it would be a blessing, that we'd be encouraged, and um, I pray that we would leave with a sense of comfort and hope that's befitting the gospel of Christ. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, can we, would you mind closing those doors? Hey, Marie. Hey. Good to see you. Kiki. Hey, Kiki. Um, Shannon, would you, mind clo- would, you, um, would you mind closing that door, Melody? Thanks so much. Oh, sorry. Yeah, my bees. Yeah. Okay, so this is the last of a three-part series um, and it's, you know, th- there have been uh, people, basically t- uh, parents, uh, the previous parents are much better parents than I. <laughs> They're older, wiser uh, parents um, talking about how certain texts in the Bible kind of informed their parenting. And so uh, the point of this series is kind of to give you a sense of how, you know, as you read the Bible, as you listen to sermons on podcasts, as you listen to sermons here or a Sunday school class or whatever it is, to see how um, the Word of God and the Bible really um, is the key foundational thing that we want to inform how we parent. Um, the The Bible will kind of lead us in a, in a countercultural way um, that is in our best interest, but it's also in the interest, the best interest of our kid children and so oh my goodness the Johnsons great to see y'all <laughs> love love these people love these people um, so with that being said um, with that being said I'm going to look at Hosea chapter 1 and 2 today Hosea 1 and 2 if, it, if anyone here has read the book of Hosea raise your hand and you get a gold star anybody here so I'm going to tell you I have I've, I've like read it and I've had a seminary class and where that it was included in but I never really studied it, uh, and so I, um, I decided uh, I had a seminary professor who's like, if you're in ministry, your life should be a never-ending cycle of what book do I not have mastery over? Okay, I'm going to study that next. And so I, Hosea has been that book for the last two months for me, and it's been really edifying. And I'm doing um, we have a we're we're reintroducing a podcast for teenagers. It's like five-minute Bible devotionals for teenagers. And we're, you can pray for us, Thursday we're going to be recording like 30-something episodes uh, in a day. It's going to be an all-day binge, all-in personality here. And, uh, and so I'm, going to t- I'm actually going to teach you the whole, hopefully the whole book of Hosea um, in five-minute snippets on uh, Thursday. So pray for that. But, but anyhow, I'm, I've, been all, I've been all up in Hosea <laughs> the, last, uh, the last few bits. So to, before I kind of get into the book... Um, First, I want to just start out and just talk about uh, a reality of parenting is that it really hurts. <laughs> it really hurts, and it can be really, really frustrating. You know, I'm not. I'm obviously. Uh, I'm. You know, we certainly recognize the joys and the blessings, and you know, our kids can be really sweet and really loving, and um, you know, they can just like do something to your heart that no one else can, right? You know, I'm, I'm up in church. When they dismiss the kids, uh, you know, my, I'm sitting there on the bench, and my daughter, Mary Matthews, is just really precious. She's just great. Um, Mary, I, I feel this just kiss on my cheek as she's like, you know, running off, and I'm just like, oh, does it get any better than this? You know, it's just amazing. Um, 
So I no way want to discount like the incredible joys and blessings of parenthood, but there are lots of there's lots of frustration, and there's um, there's lots of hurt. And so just to kind of go through that a little bit, a lot of times your kids are really ungrateful. <laughs> uh, I would say Christmas Day is the is the most ungrateful day of any child's life, right? <laughs> because you know, mom like 95%, maybe 5% mom has been just you know, slaving away for months, you know, running every spare minute, running to the store and working on the stocking and doing all this kind of stuff. And like, you know, has, you know, as a family, you've invested hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on presents and, you know, wrapping everything and just all that work. I don't do any of this, by the way. I mean, this is all God bless her, Lauren. Uh, I might, I may, I like maybe do a little babysitting to free up Lauren, but I, I, I no way carry the ball on this. And then it's like, they whip through their presents in like 10 seconds and, and you know, and, and there's not much of a thanks mom and dad, you know. Santa, Santa gets all the credit, right? She's, thanks Santa. Um, anyhow, so yeah, they can be ungrateful. They can be really whiny. You know, you're on a road trip and you're, you're like, die, you know, trying to make it through Atlanta traffic and it's frustrating and it's scary and your child is whining because they didn't get, you know, their seventh animal cracker. Um, they can be completely inconsiderate, of course. I mean, this is it's obviously it's totally unreasonable for us to expect that a kid can in any way understand our position as a parent. But there is a reality. They have absolutely no empathy for your situation as a parent. Um, there are tantrums. Uh, I'm 40. I still throw tantrums. But, um, but you know, so if you're in small childrenville, uh, we're still, you know, I still have a two-year-old. And, you know, we still live in tantrumville. Um Kids can be deceitful. I mean, no one has to teach your kid how to lie, right? It's not like, you know, doesn't it just grate your gears when you know that your child, like it's so flagrantly obvious that they have done something, you confront them about it, and they just like lie to your face. And you just really want to say like, how stupid do you think I am? There's that. There are times you feel taken advantage of. You can see your kids can be so self-absorbed. They do not think about how their actions affect the rest of the unit. Um, And then maybe the one that drives you the craziest, this is for me, is when your children cannot take good advice, right? You're like, don't do this. You will get hurt, like guaranteed. If you stand on the stool and you try to do that, it's going to fall and you're going to get hurt. Don't touch the oven. Or don't touch the stove, right? Don't do it. Don't do it. You see, I mean, this is the life of a parent, especially if, you know, with like small children. Uh, and, you know, honestly, and of teenagers for crying out loud. Holy cow! It's it's the life of all parents. Anyhow, you give good advice. The good advice is because you love them, you want to protect them, you want to be safe, and inevitably they defy it and they get hurt. And what you want to say is, I told you so. You know. I told you not to do that. This is why I told you not to do that. Why did you not trust me, right? So anyhow, there is, um, so we can, it can be hurtful. We can get angry. We can be impatient. We can get hard-hearted. We can be resentful. And so um, the, the, the kind of primary thesis of the lesson today is that your child's worst behavior uh, in your relationship with that child, in the parent-child relationship, is generally representative of our normal behavior with God. Um, if you know, to looking at your child's being self-absorbed, not thinking about how their actions affect others, completely disregarding good advice, um, being ungrateful, 
being, you know, um, being like justifying when they do something really bad, but they have a, a, a good excuse or good reason for why they smack their sibling in the face. You know, that is a good picture of how we tend to operate in our relationship with God. Um, and that's a really hard word. And so, but the reason it's kind of hopeful um, is one, it kind of will remind us of just how gracious God is to us. And when we are like, when we're humbled and we're kind of honest about our flaws and sin and our imperfection, it generally is going to make us much more patient and much more kind and much more compassionate um, with our kids and their bad behavior with us. When I know this is how I act towards God, uh, the, the way that, that my child is acting towards me is the way that I act towards God and God's really gracious to me, then there's this natural response of like, okay, I can be patient uh, in the way I deal with my child, um, that doesn't mean that, that that doesn't mean I don't discipline my child. Uh, that just means as I discipline my child, I can do it in a calm, loving way, and I'm not operating out of you know a sense of uh, hurt or anger or entitlement or whatever it may be. So with that being said, um, yeah, with that being said, uh, our child's one of the, I think one of the most sanctifying things about being a parent is seeing that this is a mirror. Your, the way your child relates to you is a mirror of how we relate to God. Um, and so with that being said, Hosea is one of the most realistic, graphic depictions of our sinful, sinfulness before God. Hosea is an in-your-face book. And so, um, I mean, yes. I mean, the basically, uh, basically, God in Hosea likens our behavior to being, this is uh, this is not my language. This is all up in the book, all over the book of Hosea, to being adulterous spouses, whores who are constantly cheating on our spouse. That's how God likens our our relate, how we relate to Him. And so it's it's hard in that way. And so it's valuable to to before we get into that because it is so so heavy to remember that this this really beautiful tension. Um, that we see in Christianity, and that is the tension of the dignity and the depravity of man. What we mean by that is that um, no matter what we do, like every person is sacred to God. Every person is filled with dignity. Um, every person is beautiful to the Lord. And so with that being said, you know, when we hear God say to Israel, you're acting like a prostitute to me, you're cheating on me, Remember that God says that within the framework of you are precious to me. Like you are valuable to me. You are sacred to me. I made you, called you by name. You have to remember that. But then also too, um, gosh, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I hear whatever different kind of worldviews or philosophical positions or, or sectors of Christianity where there's not really much of a uh, conversation about human sin or human imperfection. Um, that is really just not very helpful because we all live with ourselves and we all know that we mess up. You know, We all know that we have thoughts that go through our mind and through our heart where we're like, oh man, gosh, if people knew that I felt this way, you know, or if people knew that I, acted, I did that behind closed doors, if people knew that I have this in my history, what would they think? And so if we don't have an, a, you know, kind of an honest conversation about human sin and human imperfection, then, gosh, it really leaves us in a hopeless place when we have those sobering moments where we, um, you know, do things that we're we really regret or that we're ashamed of. And so, there's just so much grace and mercy here in in this book. So, to give you a little background on Hosea before we get into the text, um, Hosea is in the Old Testament. So, this is before Jesus, 
and it's um, one of what you call the minor prophets. Um, prophets, you have the major prophets, and then you have the 12, which are the minor prophets. And the minor prophets are a lot shorter. <laughs> their books are just much, much shorter. It's kind of why I like the minor prophets, because you can like knock them out and study them pretty quickly. Uh, they're hard. They're really, really hard, because there's a lot of contextual information. But prophets, um, to give you one, one little piece of background here, so you have priests and prophets. And so in, uh, in the religion of Israel, in, in Judaism, the priest was an advocate for the people uh, before God. Think of it like a courtroom. And so the priest in the temple would go before God and advocate for the people, offer sacrifices, and say, God, have mercy on the people. I'm here to represent them. Well, the prophet, the prophet's role in the religion of Israel <coughs> was as, uh, as a representative of God. The prophet was like the prosecution. Um, and so what you see here is that um, the, the relationship that binded the people of Israel to God was a covenantal type relationship. That's one of the primary paradigms for how God and his people relate is through a covenant. And a covenant is, it's a relationship, but it also kind of has some type legal nuances to it in the sense of, um, yeah, and just kind of the way of it's, 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 it's more personal than a contract, but there is a contractual aspect to it. God says, I'm going to be this for you, and in turn, I expect you to be this for me, and the people never, f never follow through on their end, and God is gracious and, and redeems them in spite of it. But, so with that being said, the prophet represents God in the covenant. And so when the people have messed up royally, um, a prophet will, will offer judgment and hope. Uh, judgment and love. The, pro the prophet will go before the people and say, you blew it in this way, you violated the covenant in this way, and you know you really deserve to be punished, and you're going ha to have these kind of disciplines, but God is going to heal you, forgive you, restore you, redeem you. That's, that's kind of what you see, this cycle of judgment and love, or failure and redemption, or sin and forgiveness. That's the cycle over and over again in the prophets. And so Hosea is um, Hosea is such an interesting book. Uh, basically, God comes to the prophet Hosea, and he says, Hosea, um, I want you to marry Gomer. And Gomer was a prostitute. And so uh, Hosea marries Gomer, and uh, Gomer has multiple affairs, has multiple children um, with men other than Hosea. She doesn't really change any. And God keeps on saying to Hosea, Hosea, take her back forgive her. Take her back. Forgive her. The children that she's had that are not yours, be a father to those children. And so basically, this is, we, we believe that Hosea that this is, and Gomer, that they are real people. Um, there's nothing to lead us to think that this is mythological or just kind of like a prophetic story. We think this is an actual, a real situation. Um, but there's obviously an analogical, an allegorical element to this, that uh, you know, Hosea is representative of God, Gomer is representative of the Israel of God's people, so that'd be the Israelites in the Old Testament, or, or us today in the New, New Covenant. Um, and so, uh, and so the the whole book flows out of this relationship where there's just continual adultery. And so, anyhow, so we're gonna I'm gonna go through, um, uh, yeah, and it's and it's it gives a very sobering, realistic appraisal of how we function in that relationship with God. So. Um, so we're gonna. I'm gonna work through. Uh, you, you, the the handout is Hosea one and two. I'm gonna go through one and two, and um, and just kind of give you a sense of uh, 
yeah, give you a sense of kind of what's going on here. Uh, and, and keeping in mind that the, the, you know, we're, the filter where we're trying to think about this is how does this lead us to be more patient and kind and uh, forgiving with our kids and their bad behavior? Um, so with that being said, uh, chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take, your, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So you can see first off, you know, basically God says, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. So basically, you know, he is very honest about the, the moral character and fiber of the person that he's going to marry. Um, and then you can see the, the kind of analog that's going to play out here when he says, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so there's this parallel between Hosea, you're going to marry this woman who's adulterous, uh, chronically and habitually, and hey, I have married myself um, to flawed people who are habitually adulterous in their relationship with me. And so, and, and keeping in mind too that you know uh, God's God's relationship to us um, is probably most purely seen as a marriage type, in some ways, as a marriage type relationship. It's it's I mean you know it's a it's a parent child relationship, but it's also a marriage relationship. Uh, the, the book Song of Songs, which is like a love story, it's a play, is, um, is you know, basically shows that one paradigm by which we relate to God as a husband-wife type relationship. And so basically God is saying, I made a tr- decision to marry people uh, who would, who would pr- continually cheat on me, so to speak. Um, all right, so then verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu, for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Um, so Jezreel um, is relates to the worship of the idol Baal. So you know we talk. The, Hosea is speaking to the northern kingdom, and uh, they really had just kind of thrown Yahweh, like the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, um, and the, the God of Christianity. They just had basically completely thrown. Yahweh in the trash. And they were all about worshiping the Canaanite pagan god Baal. And so that's kind of, I mean, when we hear about things like that, it kind of sounds silly in a way. We're like, come on, what are you doing? You know, you've got some figurine or some statue. That sounds so dumb. But here's the thing is that Baal represented fertility. So with that being said, in an agrarian culture, a, a fertility god meant, you know, financial prosperity because uh, he would make the crops grow. And fertility also had to do with having children, uh, and it also related to sexuality. So sounds pretty close to home in the sense of the United States. You know, money, uh, you know, success, sex, uh, our children. These are all idols. These are all things that we elevate to an ultimate level, and kind of expect to function for us like God. So the yeah. Israelites worshiping Baal is not so like silly and backwards and primitive as we might think because what Baal represented are things that we, you know, that we are very, very, uh, we are, you know, daily tempted um, to embrace and kind of worship as a god. So, so that being said, um, when he's talking about Jezreel, he's, he's, um, he is kind of pointing to, ha- to the, the 
pervasive worship of this God in the land of Israel and the total disregard for Yahweh. So it says, She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her no mercy, for I will have no mercy for, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Wow, I mean this sounds really intense. Um Really, when it says no mercy, it's not it's not so much God saying like I'm forever completely cutting off my mercy from them because we'll see God's God's mercy comes later in this chapter. But what this indicates to us is that no mercy is a child that Gomer has had by someone other than Hosea. She's had this this child outside their marriage, uh, and so that that's that's um you know that's uh that's what's an, it's indicative of. Um, so then, eight. When she had weaned no mercy, and she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, "Call his name not my people, uh, for you are not my people, and I am not your God." Uh, so again, this is another child out of wedlock, um, outside the marriage. It's not not Hosea's. Um, and, and anyhow, so that you know, Gomer's not having her best day. It's not. She's not living her best life now. <laughs> so anyhow, so. So God, um, so you know, you can see this really dark picture of this adulterous relationship. And now I want you to think about if you're Hosea, uh, think about Hosea and the um, and just like the emotional import of this. You know, you've married someone; she's a bad reputation, so you know you're probably dealing her a solid <laughs> in marrying her uh, because it's not like you know the good Jewish boys were looking for a prostitute to marry. Um, but God commanded him to do that, and he did that. And so now, uh, think about how he's feeling towards the Lord. Like, why did you put me in this situation? Uh, here, I've married this woman. She repeatedly is having affairs on me. She's having children who are not mine. And you're saying, stick with her. And you're saying, raise her children. Um, that's a tough pill to swallow, okay? And so one of the things I think is, is important, and this is not something that's um, meant to shame us, but like, keep in mind, like God is a person. Like God is a person. He is the author of emotions, um, and so and we live in a real personal relationship with God. And so, with that being said, like God, and what you see throughout this book is that God experiences our sin um, as adultery. Um, you know, when I, um, you know, am like. So so um, obs- idolatrously obsessed with like work or succeeding or achieving, and I'm really kind of worshiping success and, and production as an idol. Like God experiences my sin in that way as adultery, and um, you know that's just I, I, the, the encouragement is that is to realize like we live in an actual real relationship with God. Like this is not some abstraction. Um, this is, you know, not like we have a relationship with a tree. Like this is a real person with a real heart and real emotions. And so, you know, in the same way that our children hurt us, you know, like it hurts when your child um, disobeys you or uh, is disrespectful to you or you've spent all this time like working on something for them and they like don't thank you and they're like dissatisfied with the birthday party or whatever it is. Um, that hurts, you know, it hurts your feelings. And so to understand that, like, we hurt God's feelings. I mean, God's a big boy. We don't need to worry. I mean, we don't need to worry about God, but we do live in a real relationship with the Lord. 
Um, and so there, there is like an emotional, re- or an emotional reality for him. So then the book ends, and, and here you see this cycle of judgment and grace. Now comes the grace and mercy that's always the last word. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. In the place where it said to them, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Is there anyone from my Tuesday morning Bible study, the Covenant Theology Bible study in here? Anybody? If you were here, you're going to be put to the test. Um, Because you can see that God makes a bunch of different references to old covenants um, that he lives in with Israel here. So the, uh, he says, yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Anybody know what uh, covenant that's a reference to? Hannah, you can answer. <laughs> yeah, the covenant with Abraham, where God says, no matter what, um, you're my people, and I'm going to stick with you. And so God is coming back here, and he's saying, hey, that promise I made to be, when he says to be, um, to be your God and you'll be my people, like he's saying, I'm going to be in relationship with you, and you can't get rid of me. Like I am, I am bonded to you forever. And, um, and so he's saying that is still in place. He says in the place where it says, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And that really points to the new covenant uh, in terms of what we see, um, we see in Romans 8 and other places where, we, you know, we, God identifies himself as our heavenly father and we as his children. And he says, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be um, gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. Uh, and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. What covenant, Old Te- well, it's two covenants, but Hane, what Old, Co- Old Testament covenant does the one head probably refer to? Putting you on the spot. Uh, covenant with David? Yeah, covenant with David, yeah. There will be one king, and that transfers to now Jesus as the, as the, you know, the king of kings who's established his kingdom and who watches over us in that way. Hanu has more theological education than I do. That's why I keep on putting it on the spot. <laughs> um, thank you, Hanu. And then finally, uh, it says, they shall go up from the land. There's debate on this, but this is probably pointing back to um, the Exodus and the, uh, the covenant with Moses and also the fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham where God brings them back, brings them out of slavery into the wilderness and then into the promised land. And so basically, God is saying, he is, God is being very honest about their, the Israel's bad behavior. Um, you know, earlier in this book and in talking about it as spiritual adultery. But then he's like, hey, I'm still who I am. Like, yes, I'm a holy God and I recognize that you failed, but I am still the kind, forgiving, merciful God of Israel. And, uh, and I've made a commitment and a covenant to be like, to, to, to relate to you in that way. And so he comes back with his grace. And so, um, so let's see what time it is. Oh, you know what? We're going to go through. Uh, uh, Hosea 1 is going to be it for today, folks. Uh, you can listen to the teenager podcast for the rest. Um, but anyhow, so basically the key thing here is no matter how bad Israel is, uh, and it's hard to think of, of, of any kind of more painful sin than like adultery. Um, and yet God says he's going to be gracious and merciful. So here's bringing this all home. Uh, that is why it's so helpful for us to live in this natural uh, judgment grace cycle with God. Like we mess up every day. There's no, you know, that's just that's just kind of how it is. 
Uh, we lose our temper. We, we, we can be selfish. We um, can be judgmental. We can say say hurtful, just thoughtless things with our mouths. Um, and the cycle of kind of living life as a Christian is, oh, I mess up, and I turn to God who forgives me. I, I ask for forgiveness, and God is gracious to me. And this is here's why this is so critical for us and how we deal with our kids. Because not only do we remember, oh, man, like in my kid's worst behavior, that's my behavior with the Lord. And so I can, I can, I can be more patient and humble with my child because I, I can, uh, you know, I can identify with them in that way. And I also remember that God has been gracious to me. God is really kind and forgiving to me. Um, he's extraordinarily patient with me. And so uh, as a product of that, I can be um, patient with my child. Notice that God does discipline Israel. I mean, they, they, uh, they make mistakes and God disciplines them as a loving parent does. Uh, and so all that to say, uh, being loving to your child does not mean that you do not discipline them or that you do not tell them like, hey, that, that really hurt. We obviously know there's an age appropriate way to do that. Um, you know, you do that differently with a two year old than you do that with a 12 year old or an 18 year old. Um, but it is, uh, it's actually loving your child well in the same way that God is loving Israel well. Um, you know, to call them out on what they're doing and to discipline them. Um, and uh, it's all about tone in that, right? Uh, I, it's interesting because in um, pastoral psychology, the, the psychologist who taught it was talking about spank, you know, like, do you spank your children? And he was talking about how, you know, research doesn't really, doesn't really indicate that spanking is very effective um, as a, you know, as a mechanism for behavior modification and whatnot. Um, but one of the things he said was uh, that in all these studies, there's no way to study the tone or the attitude of the parent who's spanked. Um, because you can not spank your child and your attitude be you're angry and you just want to put them in their place. And I, I, this, this is, you know, this is, this is the <laughs> sinful waters in which I swim because I, I have a really short temper. Um, but he just said, honestly, the bigger indicator is the attitude. And so what we kind of hope for as parents is that when we do have to discipline our kids, when we do have to, um, you know, they have to suffer consequences, have privileges taken away, do time out, whatever, whatever it is in your, your age range, our hope is that we can do that in a way that's patient uh, and, and do that in a way that's, that's calm, uh, do that in a way that's kind, where we're not shaming them or where it's we're not out of control in terms of our anger or our sense of hurt or whatever it is and um, that's the attitude we want um, to always be relating to our kids and this basic principle of the gospel that we see here is really what enables us to do that uh, because again um, we remember hey I'm I'm just like you uh, in my in my bad behavior uh, we can we're on the same plane before God uh, and God has been really gracious to me he's been kind to me and so that, that is what enables you to have that attitude of patience uh, and kindness towards your child as you discipline them. Um, let me see if I have anything else here. You know, that's all I got for today, folks. Um, <laughs> I'll pray for us, and if anybody has any questions, uh, I'll be happy to, uh, to answer questions. Um, Father, thanks for your, um, your great mercy and your grace to us. Uh, forgive us our sins. We apologize that uh, we disregard you and we're not very grateful for many ways that you bless us. You know, everything that we have is from you. And um, 
forgive us that uh, when we're um, don't want to take account accountability in a way that's 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 honest and true and uh, and I pray Lord that we would all remember and experience your grace and your kindness and patience towards us and I pray that would give us a really humble kind patient attitude towards other people but particularly towards our children so I ask these prayers in Jesus name amen you've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent if you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services find out more at adventbirmingham.org